Noteworthy stories by WDAV Classical Public Radio celebrate the rich diversity of classical music's past, present, and future that's often overlooked. The weekly series hosted by me, Loki Karuna, serves up bite-sized stories about the lives and music of artists of color, women, and others from historically underrepresented groups. Check out this week's Noteworthy Artist and catch up on past episodes at noteworthyclassical.org. And this is Triloquy. Thanks so much for joining me this week after the show's very first mid-season break. I hate to do it, but I had to get myself together here in New York. I appreciate y'all's understanding as I've transitioned here to the new studio space here in Manhattan to bring you more of what this show was built to bring. Huge shout out to the returning listeners and longtime supporters. Couldn't do this without you. To the new listeners, Triloquy is a podcast built to decolonize the phrase classical music. Each week I come here to offer some insights on the latest news and trends from the so-called classical music field. I share conversations that I have with leaders and change makers in the field, fellow decolonizers, and I wrap things up each week with a Triloquy, my own personal true and real for the week. For more on the Triloquy podcast, to catch past opuses, and to donate, go over to our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. In this week's Triloquy, I'm going to go back to basics to very briefly underscore why this work of decolonizing classical music is so important from my perspective, especially within the context of some of the racial violence that's been going on lately. Before that, I'll share my recent chat with Baron Ryan, who is a pianist and entrepreneur who, like a few of the other musicians who've been on this show, uh, has put together a new children's book. More on that in a bit. Well, I guess it's not a children's book, but it's definitely um, an illustrated book that tells a story in a really accessible way. So more on that in a bit. Uh, but for right now, I want to offer a little commentary on a story that came across my social media from The Guardian. The headline reads, John Elliott Gardner pulls out of BBC proms after punching <laughs> bass soloist. Okay, so for folks who don't know, Sir John Elliott Gardner is an English conductor who is extremely well known within the most Eurocentric corners of classical music. If you go to his website or to his Wikipedia, you'll see that Bach is the composer. He's gained a lot of notoriety conducting and bringing to life. Well, anyway, he was recently in France uh, leading some opera performances at the Berlioz Festival when I guess the soloists, at least one of the soloists, left the stage from the wrong side. According to the streets, <laughs> Maestro Gardner pulled one of the bass soloists to the side, slapped him, and punched him in the face. And as a result, Gardner stepped down. His emotions got the best of him. He got caught up in the moment. And now he's out of a job, at least out of that job. He wasn't dismissed, again, just to make it clear, according to what I'm seeing. But he stepped down and returned to England from France, where I'm sure he'll uh, continue to get lots of work. If you find this article, you'll be able to read that everyone blamed <laughs> a number of things, including the weather, I guess. It says here, a representative for Gardner said the conductor was suffering from extreme heat in France and suspects a recent change in his medication may have provoked behavior that he now regrets. It's interesting how some people get to blame their behavior on everyone but themselves, huh? 
I also can't help but to think about the whole Will Smith saga a while back and how everyone had an opinion on the appropriateness of that. Do you remember that? Will Smith faced lots of backlash and repercussions for his violent behavior, which I guess... You know, he should have faced in some regards, but Maestro Gardner will be uh, just fine, I imagine. I'm bringing this story to the front because I think it's representative of a culture within classical music that we don't always talk about. Things like sexual abuse and uh, misconduct have started to come uh, to get some attention uh, as they exist within conservatories, orchestras, opera houses. But the physical violence is also very real. Older musicians will tell you stories about getting their hands slapped for things like improper finger position or making mistakes at the piano. I've heard about band leaders who slap musicians. There was even that movie called Whiplash, if you remember back, I think 2014 or so, where a jazz teacher abuses his students quite openly during rehearsals, verbally and physically. Now, I, for one, have never experienced anything like that, but I'm from Memphis. I can only imagine what would have happened to some of these old white men if they tried it with some of the folks I grew up with. But alas, the hallowed halls and backstages of opera performances are a little different than where I came from. We're getting to uh, back to school time. I'm sure many of the students uh, are already back at it uh, by this time. So whether you're a student or the parent of a student, I hope that you can... Uh, Remain vigilant and, and keep things like this on your radars. These teachers shouldn't be abusing students with their words, much less with their hands. And the things that have been normalized for generations of classical music have to be dismantled. It's not okay to slap a student's hand when they make a mistake at the piano or when their hand position isn't quite right. And it certainly isn't okay to jack somebody up behind the stage, punch them, slap them just for exit for doing anything really, but certainly not just for exiting on the wrong side. We're not going to get to this new, renewed, decolonized space if we take things like this lightly. Um, toward the end of this article, they talk about how Gardner had a reputation even for being rude and violent. So there was a track record there, and yet he's still at large, <laughs> a conductor at large. Now, I know people get tired of me bringing gender and race into everything, but I'm sorry, we have to go there. What do you think would happen if any black man pulls some shit like that. I, I'm not even going to say anyone's name, but just imagine. Can you imagine the shame that the industry would try to put on a woman who did that sort of thing? Emotional, unhinged, you know, all of the words that they would use to, uh, to, to bury her. As we continue to talk about decolonizing this art form again, we got to take into account all of the small things that have created our current status quo. Thoughts and prayers <laughs> to everyone involved, including Sir John Elliott Gardner. The next time he tries it, I hope he gets what he needs to get to stop being that way. Cause and effect. I'm not wishing bad on him or on anyone. I'm simply acknowledging the inevitability of his ass whooping if he keeps at it. And that's that on that. But of course, this music world isn't always so violent. Sometimes love is the predominant emotion behind performances and collaborations. And that's what this week's guest is here to talk about. His name is Baron Ryan. He's a, a pianist, a composer, and the author behind Honey, If It Wasn't For You, which is a story that outlines his relationship with a woman named Linda, who commissioned him to set her late husband's writings to music. I know that uh, there's a lot of hard-hitting content on this show <laughs> most of the time, but this story was one that I found really fascinating. So it's a pleasure for me to offer my chat with Baron Ryan so that uh, he can share a little bit about himself 
and how his project came to life. He's also doing some really great job of uh, decolonizing the world of piano through his performances, through his teaching. So he, he's doing a lot of really uh, great stuff that he also speaks to in this uh, conversation. Uh, so here's a little of the song that was born from this story. Again, Honey, If It Wasn't For You, um, as performed by Baron Ryan himself to get us into our chat. Hope y'all enjoy. I was sleeping when she left again this morning Returning to her job another day She leaves me back home dreaming Gotta make it on my own I pray the words will come to me today She tells me her new work gives satisfaction And for me not to worry while she's gone She swears it makes her happy to leave me to my space For surely it's hard work that writes a song Honey, if it wasn't for you I'm mostly pretty reserved because if I'm in awe of what's going on on stage then I just want to take it all in. I want to understand. I want to look at how the musicians are communicating to each other. I want to see how they're playing their instruments. Um, but if something moves me, then I'll, I'll exclaim. And I say that in my, in my own concerts too. If somebody gives a holler or a whoop or something during one of my tunes, after the tune, I say, hey, thank you for doing that. That sort of behavior is strongly encouraged so that there's a little <laughs> bit more freedom uh, to respond even to even to more traditional music but a lot of this it's not i think it's even more strictly cultural too when i play in wisconsin it's different than when i play in south carolina they're mm. much they're they're different uh they're different cultures even within broader cultures do you spend much time with the mozart piano sonatas or the rachmaninoff concerti that that sort of repertoire these days i don't because i think that my greatest strength lies elsewhere there are so many great pianists who can play that music very well and who have done so and who have been trained to do so. And I think I could play it well, but it would take me a lot of time. And I would rather find something that I'm more uniquely good at, that I have a, a unique positioning for. So what is to be done with, you know, so-called classical music? Do you think it's sustainable for it to exist, even if just in its own little corner? Or should all classical artists be looking to uh, spread their wings in the way that you have, at least in a similar way uh, than you have? Well, the great thing about, about each individual artist is that we each get to make our own decisions. So for some, you can, you can explore like I have. And for others, uh, you've, you've done well with the with the traditional music. And if there's demand for it, which I, uh, I, I love traditional classical music. I love listening to it, especially. Uh, I love playing it too, but it goes back to the, what, what am I uniquely good, uh, good at? And so it's, we'll, we'll find out. The short answer is, I don't know exactly. I know that, that I am edified by hearing it and that I learn a lot from, from Bach and Beethoven that I can then apply to my own music. So 
for me, it's it's still viable. But whether it's viable enough for the general public at large, I, I don't think that's for me to say. That's for, <laughs> that's for the future to determine. Sure, sure. I mean, and speaking of what you're uniquely good at, I wonder how that was cultivated over the years. Can you talk about some of your earliest engagements with music? Yeah. So my father's a professional pianist as well. So I came out of the womb, essentially being surrounded by music. I would see him play in concert. We had family friends who would take my sisters and me to local performances of touring acts. And so I was surrounded by all sorts of influences, but the strongest were classical from my dad, also jazz from my dad, also hymns and gospel songs from my dad. He plays, he's just as varied in his abilities and in his interests as I am. But I also started getting into funk as I got older. Uh, I got into fusion briefly, but then I, I kind of grew up. I, I, I moved away from fusion. Uh, it seemed to be a little bit more uh, show-offy and, and less listener-centric. Um, but from, from the time I was young, I was surrounded by all different sorts of music. And that's kind of why I didn't want to have to choose between any one of them as a professional. Hmm. I thought, well, this is all great. And some of my favorite artists would combine them. Like some of my favorite, favorite artists, uh, Bela Fleck, Bobby McFerrin, Yo-Yo Ma, don't confine themselves to just one category. I, what do you call what Bobby McFerrin does? There's, it's, it's unclassifiable. It's just what he does. It's, it's his own category. And so I thought there's no reason that you have to box yourself in to be a viable artist. So my mm -hmm. challenge was just figuring out how I would apply that mindset to what I was doing. Yeah, and that way of thinking doesn't really run in uh, conjunction with the way that uh, we classically trained musicians tend to think. You know, when we go to music school, the goal is to practice and practice and practice. And if you're lucky, you'll get a spot in an orchestra or, or doing something and, mm -hmm. and that'll be your life happily ever after. Uh, did you plan on taking your um, multi-genre approach to music school? What, what were your initial thoughts about how you would utilize your piano skills? I didn't initially think that I would try to create my own path. I thought that I would follow the path of the institution. What, and what you're describing, I, I interpret and have thought of as institutionalized music. It's what mm -hmm. structure, organizational structures are, are centered around, which can be good for some things, but it's not necessarily good for everything. And I thought that I would fit into that mold. But I, even while I was in it, I went to the University of Oklahoma for a piano performance degree. And I remember wanting to play in my sophomore recital, which was not required. I just, my professor recommended that I do it. And I said, okay, sure. I wanted to play a jazz tune, a jazz transcription. And I love my professor, um, still do. But so this is not a, I'm not trying to denigrate him, but he just, he recommended that I not add that jazz tune mm -hmm. to my recital. And I thought, well, why not? It's good music too. And uh, I still did it because I thought, I'm not getting graded for this. I'm doing this because I want to. And so I'm going to put this jazz tune in because I want to. Uh, so even while I was within the institution, I still chafed a little bit at being told what to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it was only after, after I graduated that I really committed myself fully to that, to that path. I mean, you're really generous in uh, your bio uh, in describing wanting to go to a big conservatory, but not quite <laughs> making it there. Yeah. I'm sure in retrospect, you see that as a as a good thing. I hope I could make that assumption, but you can, yes. beyond recognizing the opportunities that you are able to create yourself in light of that, how else do you think about that era 
of your life? I mean, do we need to talk about more um, uh, diversity in recruitment processes or equity in what applications look like? What do you attribute your story uh, to and how do you apply it to some of the broader narratives that are happening today? Well, speaking more individually, I think that a closed door can be a closed door can be as useful as an open door. Mm-hmm. And so that was a closed door in my life. And I realized, uh, well, I knew this at the time. I didn't get serious about the piano until I was 16. I played starting at four, but I only practiced as much as was necessary to be impressive on stage or to try to do well in a competition. But I wasn't regularly putting in three, four plus hours at the piano until I realized that I needed to do something with my life and that mm-hmm. I seemed to be good at music. So maybe I should pursue that. And you know, as well as anybody that the people who are trying to get into these top level programs get serious about their craft 10 years before that mm. and, and have put in thousands of hours. They've learned main repertoire, all the Chopin etudes in the pian- case of the piano. So I knew I was behind, but I just thought, well, maybe, maybe I'll, they'll be willing to see my potential. Um, and whatever the reason that they, that they didn't, they didn't let me in, it was helpful for me to know that that was not the most useful path for me to pursue. And so I, that's, that's how I choose to see it. It's, it's hard for me uh, when I don't have, when I don't have a stake in what's going on, let's say, let's say you're talking about admission at, Mm -hmm. at these institutions. I've never been at one of those. I've never been in the admissions of one of those. So, uh, it's easy for me to say what they should be doing without having been there and going through it myself. Sure. But I just know for myself that it was good. It still hurts a little. I still think, oh man, I wish I kind of wish I had gotten in. But it's um, I think it's worked out even better than it might have otherwise because it forced me into this um, adventurous path that I'm now on. So many of us, myself included, you know, attribute a lack of generational exposure to this music as a reason why some of us fall behind. You know, I I took my first private lesson as a bassoonist um, in undergrad with with my teacher, Mm. you know, because my parents just knew nothing about it. But, you know, you come from musicians. It's interesting for me to hear you say that you didn't really get serious until 16. It sounds like your mm-hmm. parents were from the beginning willing to let you choose whatever you wanted to choose instead of, you yes. know, putting you in front of the piano and and locking you there. <laughs> yes, and I appreciate them for that. My my parents uh did not want to push me toward music to force me into it and and make me end up hating it as as could have been the case. Uh but so it was up to me to really get uh, serious about it. And um, I'm thankful for that. And there's also the, this idea that we have to, uh, that I have to deal with is that, well, why did I want to go to a, a big name school anyway? Mm-hmm. Is, is that, would that make me a better musician? Um, or a better question, would that make me better able to connect with an audience? I think that's more, that's the mm-hmm. most important part of being a performer anyway. How are you invoking a sense of wonder in the listener? Would going to a big name school help me do that better than I'm doing right now? And I think the, the, the answer in many cases is not necessarily, maybe for some, but it depends on if on what you take from that experience and maybe not getting in is better for you learning how to connect because honestly it was better for me because i like i like having the immediate connection to the listener and not 
and having to rely on the listener for my success instead of thinking, well, I'm a professor and so I can, um, my salary is already taken care of. And so I can present this recital however I like, whether or not the people who are there actually enjoy themselves. So in, in the state where I am, I don't have that option. I have mm-hmm. to connect with the people who are listening. And that's why I'm making music. So it's really been, um, I think it's, it's useful to think about why you're even trying to do it. Often for me, it was because I wanted to look good. I wanted to be, impre- <laughs> I wanted to look impressive. And uh, I don't think that's a great reason. <laughs> so if you have a better reason than that, um, then by all means, pursue it. But really examine what, what's attracting you to it in the first place. Again, going back to this idea of different engagements of music spaces, of concert spaces, you know, again, the the orchestral musician engages audiences by taking in all of the applause at the end of a Mm -hmm. a 30, 40 minute symphony. How do you measure audience engagement or the degree to which you're connecting with the listener? I measure it by how quiet the room is Hmm. when I can hear it. So when I'm playing, often I, I'm, I'm listening to the piano. But when I, my, my speaking, I think, is just as important as my playing in mm. my concerts because I try to present an experience that anyone can appreciate regardless of how educated they are with what I'm playing. I try to make it so that you can never have heard of any of the music that I'm playing for you. And sometimes, because I play many original compositions, that's the case. But you can still have a great time. And so the, the words that I say are just as important as the notes that I play. So I listen for how quiet, how attentive people are while I'm, while I'm talking. I listen for how attentive they are at, at the beginning of a piece and at the end of a piece. That's how I judge uh, how engaged the audience is and how well I'm doing. And along the way, somehow you managed to pick up composition. That's something that in my experience is uh, most performing musicians never quite get to when, when, and how did composition become a part of, of what you do? It became a part when I was looking, when it solved the problem that I found, Mm. because I had, after I didn't get into those graduate schools, I decided to focus on music that I was uniquely good at as we've touched on before. And so I played, uh, what I call classical with attitude, which is classical music that has jazz or ragtime influence. And then I, that was my first album. My second album was The Master's Apprentice, which is my transcriptions of my favorite jazz pianists, Oscar Peterson, Art Tatum. I, I wrote down their solos and then I played them back. And I thought, okay, what's the next step? And, I, and the next step I thought should be classical music that had funk or blues or soul, country, pop. And when I lo- went to find that music, I didn't find what I was looking for. Maybe there were some elements of that, but uh, it lacked something in my estimation. And so I thought, well, this music should exist. And if it needed to exist, but it didn't yet, I thought, well, I might as well write it. So that's how I started writing. I had written here and there before that, but um, this was basically out of necessity. And then at at this point, I was was about 30, uh, five years ago or so. And I had gotten used to looking for holes, looking for lack in an area that I could fill, uh, not looking for where people were, were already going, mm-hmm. but looking for where people weren't going yet, but I thought that they should be. And so I felt very comfortable uh, exploring that, um, that side of music, even though I hadn't done it much before. Were there things that you needed to pick up 
along the way. Uh, you know, I know a lot of composers spend time learning, you know, the ranges of different instruments or, you mm -hmm. know, what, what things blend well together. What, what was the learning curve like for you entering composition? Well, at first I wrote only for piano and that was very comfortable because I've played a lot of piano and I have uh, also, I've arranged music for piano. I've done some cover songs. So I had even, and which is a nice bridge. You don't have to come up with the thematic material or melodic material. Mm -hmm. You just have to learn how to treat it. And so um, writing for piano wasn't too, it, I didn't have to learn how the instrument functioned because I already knew. And then uh, my favorite part of my music education uh, as, as far as classroom learning was theory and forms. Mm -hmm. I love knowing how things are put together. And um, so I wrote two major compositions for, my, for that album. It's called First of Its Kind. The first one is uh, Dance Suite, which I based off of box dance. It's just the general premise of because composers have always used dances, popular music, folk mm -hmm. music at the time to inform their writing. And so I wrote four movements to this dance suite that each is supposed to sound like a piano arrangement of a pop song you've just never heard before so that it would so i so i would just look at how a pop song was constructed first chorus first chorus bridge etc so i so that was how i put that together and then the second piece was a sonata and i just took a beethoven sonata that i had learned and then added my own melodic material it sounds there's a lot more jackson five influence than beethoven had there's more mm -hmm. james brown in it than beethoven had uh, there's a bit of an Irish jig, but his structure, I just stole from his third piano sonata um, and then infused my own sensibility, my own musical sensibility. So starting out, it was like that. Now I have composed some for violin and cello uh, as well, piano trio, and that I did have to study a bit more, but I like going just a little bit at a time. I'm not ready to, to compose for a symphony yet, but I think my next project would be a a string quartet or a woodwind quintet, something like that. So I can just add a little bit at a time and then, I'll, and then eventually I'll be ready for a symphony. Yeah, so maybe some years down the line, we can expect the Baron Ryan piano concerto or something. Absolutely. That would be exciting. Yes. <laughs> I wanted to uh, speak uh, briefly about your uh, commission from Chamber Music, Tulsa. Mm -hmm. uh, it's hard for me to hear the name Tulsa and not think about the history that's connected to it. Um, did you go into that collaboration knowing that you would write that type of music, a music that spoke to that bit of history? Was it more open-ended? I, I wonder what what came together for that collaboration. Yes. So this was in 2021 that the piece was set to premiere. Chamber Music Tulsa commissioned me to write a work for Chamber Ensemble, which is why I wrote for the Piano Trio, to commemorate the 1921 massacre in Tulsa. So I knew that it was for that occasion. I had specifics of, um, they, they let me choose the ensemble and I wanted to choose something with a piano because, well, for one thing, I knew how to write for it. So that was one third of the instruments that I wouldn't have to learn. It was also, I knew that um, if I didn't play the piece at this point, it would probably never be played again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I wanted to be able to, um, to play it myself so that it would get a wider audience. Um, but they said that it needed to be a certain length. But outside of that, they let me choose how to present the work. And so I, I like constraints as a, as a composer, as, a, as a, an artist. Um, even if they're not imposed upon me, I like to impose them upon myself to focus my efforts because too much possibility is paralyzing. So I 
I thought, well, I want to go back to the eyewitness accounts of this mm. of this travesty. And I found an account of a woman who said that she and her daughter went upstairs when they realized what was happening to read a chapter or two of the Psalms of David. Mm. So I found the darkest lament psalm and based my piece off of that, the, based my based the emotion, the emotional tone of the piece off of that. And the piece is called My Soul is Full of Trebles. Mm. Mm. There's a diversity of thought, a wide diversity of thought amongst composers and even amongst composers of color when it comes to what is created and for what purpose things are created. Do you feel, maybe even uh, specifically when it came to this collaboration, did you feel a sense of um, obligation, maybe more of a sense of opportunity? Where do you, where do you stand on the spectrum of um, speaking to the times and, and uh, speaking to lived experiences through music, through composition? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that it is inarguably important that your work resonate with the people who is listening to it. And mm-hmm. so to some degree, it needs to be timely. Uh, but there's also a, an aspect of it that you want to be timeless as well. And, and the difficulty is how you do both of those things at the same time. But I think that the, the best approach for me, if I'm trying to speak to an issue, let's say, is to speak to myself first and then to everyone else second. Mm-hmm. If I come off as preaching, as, as pointing my finger and shaking my fist without uh, recognizing that I am also not perfect, then I think it loses its impact. But if I am, if I am trying to communicate a message and knowing that I am guilty of it myself, mm. then um, I think it works out better for everyone. Did growing up in Tulsa, uh, was there always the backdrop of this history? Is it something that's taught in schools? Because, you know, there are many folks on other parts of the country who had never heard of Greenwood or, or any of that until a few years ago. Was that always sort of in the backdrop of your adolescence? I don't remember when I learned about it, but it wasn't, it wasn't when I was an adult. It was while I was still a student that, that I learned that, that the, uh, the massacre had taken place. Uh, it wasn't all. It wasn't in the forefront of my mind um, when I was growing up. Yeah, that's that's really interesting to me because you know bringing things to the front is important, especially through arts mediums. Um, but of course, we have to think about traditional arts audiences and what they're comfortable with, what they're uncomfortable with. So it it, it seems like it was really great for uh, Chamber Music Tulsa to even be willing to put a story like this on stage in the first place. It's something that we don't still don't see that much of. It was, yes, it was an amazing, one of the highlights of my career to this point. They really took, speaking more, more specifically about them commissioning me, they, uh, one of their board came to the premiere of my sonata that I wrote. Um, I, I actually wrote that sonata because I had a local performance and needed new repertoire to play. Mm. Uh, so, I marketed that it was the premiere of my first major composition and their board member recommended that they commission me having only that one experience of having um, of me having composed a work before, but they still, they took a risk on me and, and I'm very grateful to them for it. It's um, that's why I, I got that Smithsonian magazine mention, which I've, I've run the wheels off of, <laughs> of that honor, <laughs> trying to tell people as much as possible. 
I've, I've done the very same thing with my New York Times <laughs> mention. So yeah, I, you got I, I totally get it. <laughs> you know, exposure doesn't pay the bills, but That's exposure right. obviously can lead to, to really great things like this. I wonder if exposure um, is at the beginning of the story of Honey, if it wasn't for you. How did you? Well, first of all, uh, for folks who don't uh, know about the story behind this, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what the book is, what this project is, and uh, what started it all. Yes. Honey, If It Wasn't For You is a song that I co-wrote with a man who died six years before I was born. And he was a songwriter. His name was Don Fagan. And he died of cystic fibrosis. So he knew from the time he was a boy that he would not live as long as most. Yet he wanted to live a full life anyway. And so when he was 24, he got married to a woman named Linda. And to fast forward a bit, I met Linda actually at a Tulsa Symphony concert where hmm. I was the featured pianist. Um, I shouldn't say that. She saw me and I, I was on stage, uh, but that's how we became acquainted. I, we connected after that and we became friends over the course of a couple of years, but it was only two years into our friendship that she said, did I ever tell you that my husband was a songwriter professionally? And I said, no. Uh, he had written a couple of songs that Charlie Pride, who's a Grammy winning country artist, had recorded. Mm -hmm. uh, but And that's when she told me that he had cystic fibrosis as well, which hit me like a wave because that's just a, an incredible sacrifice to recognize that you would marry someone knowing that he was going to die soon, relatively mm -hmm. soon. Um, and she said, then he left behind these boxes of song lyrics. I wonder if you'd want to take a look at them. Hmm. And I felt honored that she would, because she did not bring this up in the two years prior that I had known her. And so I felt honored that she just was inviting me into that part of her life, which I'm sure was, must have been very sensitive. So I, I said yes, but it took her several months to actually give them to me. And I didn't realize at the time that she hadn't looked inside these boxes for 40 years mm. since he had passed away. So she ultimately gave them to me. And I thought, I, th I thought the best outcome of this is if I could find lyrics to a song that Don wrote about Linda hmm. and then set that to music. Because then thinking, of, thinking as a writer, sort of the three characters of the story, what's the most we could each, how, how could we each contribute the most to this, to this story? And so I knew what I was looking for and I found what I was looking for. It was lyrics to a song called Honey, If It Wasn't For You. And it's about how Don sits at home and... Um, writes music while his wife is gone at work. Uh, but if it weren't for her, he would have nothing to write about. And so I set it to, I set it to music. I performed it for Linda and I asked her permission, her blessing for me to share it. And I picked, um, I picked a book because I was thinking about how, how would I, how would I condense this 40? It's at least a 40 year story if not an 80-year story, because mm -hmm. eight, that's about how long it had been since Don was born. How do I condense that into something that I could tell on stage, for instance, because I would want to tell the story on stage before I, I played the song. And I thought, well, the simplest way I could do it would be to write it as an illustrated storybook. Hmm. And I thought, ah, well, I should just do that then so that people can learn why outside of the song, because the song doesn't really tell you the story. Um, it's the focal point but it doesn't give the context. So that was my way of, of telling people why this song was so special. I'm curious, were there uh, any runner-ups in this uh, 
in this uh, collection of, of uh, <laughs> lyrics and songs or, or subject matter that, you know, you almost went toward, but decided uh-huh. to go with this instead? Honestly, there weren't. I, I almost stopped looking when I found this one. It was about mm. a third of the way into the box. And I thought, well, this is it. it I saw cues about Linda, things that she had told me about their relationship. I thought, he's talking about her. But then I thought, well, maybe there's something better. So I looked in the rest of the box and I thought, no, this is it. And then I confirmed that it was about Linda. I didn't, I didn't, I tried not to do too much, too much big at one time. So I showed her the lyric sheet and I said, "Uh, have you seen this before? And she said, no, she had never looked at that, at that particular page before. And I said, is that about you? And she said, yes, that's about me. So I confirmed that. Good thing it was. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'll say. Yeah. (laughs) Um, The image on the front of this book is really intriguing to me. It's it's a an image of you playing, but a reflection of of Don on the on the stand of the piano. I wonder yes. if you could speak to the emotional journey of this piece. It seems like there would have been lots of tears. Linda feeling like she's hearing her late husband's voice through yours. Can can you can you speak to that? It is surreal. The the number of coincidences that had to happen for this. For this story to come about. And speaking of the cover, which we're trying to think, I was trying to think of a way to portray this. How do you, how in one image, how do you portray this story? And we, I, we thought about having a, a faint image of him in the actual image. Um, but, but Linda said, is that his ghost? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, uh, no. Um, and then we talked about I actually was mentioning it to a friend that I said, I don't know how to, how, to, how to solve this. And he said, I see a reflection, a reflection in something. And I thought, oh, the, reflect, the reflection in the piano. But there are so many parallels of, of us both being musicians. Of, of He played the piano, which is a little unusual for a country songwriter that you would think of guitar. But he played the piano. Um, we were both similar age i suppose well when she knew him i was i was certainly the age when when he was alive and she, mm-hmm. when they were married um and there's a line in the book where it says that i reminded linda a little of dawn and that's true uh she saw she saw some of the same spirit in me that she saw in him and it's to have set his words to music and to bring them to life um i would love to I would love to ask Linda about that specifically. I haven't. That's the type of thing that you might ask in an interview setting, but not a one-on-one. So tell me how this made you feel. Fortunately, we're doing a a book event here locally later this month, and maybe I'll get the chance to ask her. Uh, But it's it's just, um, it seems like it's a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So I don't don't even know, especially at this point, being so close to it. I'm not sure I, I have the perspective and the words to articulate just how um, how it feels completely. What's been the impact uh, of this project on your own future compositions? It seems like now you know you have a uh, and uh, an eye into what a really great love song should be like, or uh-huh. or, or those sorts of things. Have you, have you taken away nuggets that you're going to use in the future? I'm sure I have, but I'm not sure what they are yet exactly. I crafted a mission statement as a as an artist last year, which is mm. to discover and present the beauty I'm uniquely positioned for. 
Mm. And that's very freeing because it, it completely disregards all the categories that we were talking about earlier. Uh, it disregards even music. It's just what, sure. what's, what evokes that sense of wonder. So um, I'm not sure how this equips me in the future. I know that it gives me an eye for stories. I've realized that I'm a, more of a writer than I knew that I was. I've, I've written some articles uh, that have been published for online publications in, in the promotion of this book. And my publicist is is pleased with with how well I write. So I thought, oh, well, maybe I could do something with this. Um, but I'm open. I'm open to see. I, I've I had heard and I knew in theory that collaboration is brings about the best work, mm-hmm. um, the best artistic creativity. But I hadn't truly experienced it until the piece with Chamber Music Tulsa and now this piece. So part of so now I think, okay, well, what's going to happen next? What invitation am I going to receive next? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's where I am, is, uh, is being open uh, to using what I've learned in whatever way presents itself. And speaking of collaboration, I want to shout out Callie Ward, the yes. uh, illustrator behind the book. Um, I did, uh, I have interviewed uh, an illustrator before, and what she told me was that illustrator and author don't typically collaborate. These are things that happen, you know, separately and they come together. Was that your experience with this or was it more collaborative? It was more collaborative. <laughs> it's good to know because I've never done this before. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I just I communicated with her on a fairly regular basis, but this was a special project because it's not fictional; it's it's nonfiction, and she it depicts me who am a public person, and so people know what I look like. She couldn't just make up somebody who looked kind of like me. She needed to represent me close enough that somebody would see it and think, "Oh yes, that is Baron." And so we were in touch. I I actually, uh, amazingly enough. I played a concert. She lives in Idaho. I played a concert 20 minutes from where she lived last fall. And so she came to the concert and then we spent a half hour afterward with her taking photos so that she could reproduce those. She could represent my likeness in the book, which was great that that happened because I didn't realize what I was asking of her to try Mm. to do all this without ever seeing me. Uh, I know how how naive I was and, and how, how big of a task it was to do that. So I am eminently grateful to her for having, uh, for having had patience with me and, and producing such beautiful il- illustrations. And hopefully you were happy with uh, the way you were illustrated and all of oh, the yeah. illustrations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, oh, it looks like my smile. Definitely. That looks like how, how I sit at the piano. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in this, um, reality TV, internet sort of world, I can't help but to think about some of the mess that could come with a project like this, maybe a family member of Linda's not appreciating uh, your being on this book. Well, well, have you gotten the opportunity to engage some of uh, the, the more extended Fagan family? I have a little bit. So I've met one of her siblings and I was concerned because this is a huge, she's, she's putting a great deal of trust in me. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I don't want to do anything. Number one, I don't want to violate that trust. Uh, but I also, selfishly, I don't want to violate that trust in the eyes of someone whom she, she trusts. Exactly. So if, especially a family member. Uh, but thankfully, that has not been the case. Her brother 
uh, came to part of the video shoot that I did for the the song. And uh, he was he was sold. He was he became a fan. So I thought, oh, good. okay. so it's um, the the family is on board as well. So I've been very uh, fortunate to to have good favor with the people close to her. And I would say we are all fortunate because we get to uh, read this book for free if we choose digitally. Yes. Why did you decide to do that? A, a lot of people aren't giving away their creations these days. Right. Well, if you want the hardcover, then you have to pay for it. Got to pay because, for that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Because it costs money to print and ship, et cetera. Uh, but I, if the reason that I discover and present art is so that the world can be more beautiful. That's the goal. Mm. Whether it's successful or not is another question. But if that's the goal, then I want to create as few boundaries on people enjoying it as possible. So if I require you to pay for it, to, to view something that costs me, marginally, it costs me nothing. For you to download a PDF does not cost me. All those costs are already into whatever I would be doing anyway. Mm -hmm. So... Um, so it costs me nothing for you to download a PDF. And if it's going to make your world a little bit more beautiful, then I want that to happen whether I get paid or not. Now, I have the option where you can contribute to my future work if you would like. But I think that with that being my mission, um, the best way to go about sharing my work is, is to give it away when I can and then to receive blessings from people in appreciation when they are when they feel so inclined. Well, how can people check out this book and um, offer those blessings that you Ah, you wonderful do? question. <laughs> you can go to book.baronryan.com. Wonderful, wonderful. Anything um, on your writing desk right now? What, what's, what's coming up immediately? Oh, too much. Yes, there is. A, I wouldn't recommend publishing a book and premiering a major new composition within a couple of months of each other because mm -hmm. it's that but that's the way things lined up i am actually i proposed to chamber music tulsa to write two more movements to the piece that i wrote for the centennial commemoration of the massacre two years ago and they accepted so i i didn't like it, the, the piece portrays grief and sorrow and it should but i didn't want that to be the last feeling that you had as a listener mm -hmm. um, because that's not the end of Tulsa, my city. And it's also not the end of the Psalms. So I thought I want there to be a movement. That's the movement of struggle. I want there to be a movement of discovery and then a movement of triumph mm. so that we can have at least a musical resolution and we can work toward the triumph in real life. So I have completed that composition and now I'm furiously learning it. I'm furiously practicing it so that I can be ready to play it. And then I'll record it in January. And if I will say that any, any blessings that you provide <laughs> by getting my, uh, my book, either version will go toward the, the recording of this piece, which is called There Arises Light in the Darkness. I have to admit, you know, as as someone, you know, mo most of my work uh, is in uh, New York, a lot of it in Minnesota. People don't typically think of Oklahoma or Idaho, as you've mentioned, as uh -huh. centers for arts and, you know, arts cre creation. It's, it's really good for me to hear that in the, in the middle part of the country, there's some stuff going on as well. There is, and there's great support. The, the thing that I like about 
this part of the country is that it's outside of the institutions of New York, for example. So people don't think they know what I should be doing. Mm. I just tell them what I'm going to do. And they say, all right, well, cool. Go for it. And, and to the degree that what I've done in the past has been successful, they're supportive of what I'm going to do in the future. Uh, there are downsides as well to, to not having as, as wide of a network at this point. But yes, I am, I've thought about moving and, and maybe I, I will still. But I like being, I like having the freedom to explore and present work that may, that I might not get to do anywhere else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you have any words of advice for um, up and coming musician, entrepreneurs trying to build a career as, as you have successfully? I would talk to someone who's doing what you're doing and not just (laughs) listening to, to them talk on a podcast, but actually sit down face to face. And and ask questions that you want to know. How much? How long is it going to take until I'm actually doing what I hope to do? Because I'll tell you that it was much longer than I thought it would be. Mm. It, um, how how consistent is it? Is it? Are there peaks and valleys? How long do they last? And I'll tell you that there are still peaks and valleys. <laughs> it's not like um, yeah, they haven't smoothed out. The, now the the overall trajectory is is up. Mm-hmm. But the valleys still hurt when you fall. So, um, or w- when there's not the work that you you thought you would have. So, ask those sorts of questions um, of someone who's actually doing it, and then you can get a better insight into what it's actually required and what what the costs will be, what you'll have to to invest. Yeah, it's needs, also it's wonderful too. Everybody needs to turn off this podcast and go find someone in real life to help them. <laughs> That's right, <laughs> but not not until it's over. Right. <laughs> I wanted to uh, close by circling back to something you uh, mentioned earlier, your personal mission statement as an artist. When you think about creating a more beautiful world in a way that you uniquely can, what does that more beautiful world look like to you? What, what would you hope that your work manifests? Mm-hmm. Well, we'll get a little existential here and, and talk about what beauty actually is. I think that beauty is uh, it's the evidence of love. It's the evidence that someone cares about you enough to make you feel good, at least for a moment. Beauty doesn't just come in art. It comes from a thoughtful word, from a bouquet of flowers, from a home-cooked meal. Those are all, and in fact, I would argue that beauty that you, that the love that you feel from the people who are closest to you is stronger than, than love that you can feel from someone who's on stage. Mm. And so a more beautiful world is one more filled with love, with the type of love that um, encourages people to give up their own interests for the sake of someone else. Mm. That's what I hope for. Honey, if it wasn't for you Honey, if it wasn't for you Honey, if it wasn't For you The tale in there of Honey, If It Wasn't For You 
to close my conversation with Baron Ryan. Be sure to find him online, contribute to his project, and share the book also titled, Honey, If It Wasn't For You, with all your friends. The holidays will be here before you know it, and I think it'll make a perfect gift for the music lover in your life. Shout out to Baron Ryan for some really incredible work out there. I'll have a link uh, to his materials to his website in the description of this opus. Okay, so my very brief triloquy for the week. This move to New York has been pretty stressful and a bit more expensive than I had anticipated. So I'll start by saying that I've had to keep my mood in check when making statements and going to social media. It's easy to project frustration to other places where it doesn't belong. But I saw something that uh, I wanted to speak to here. I don't feel like I'm uh, (laughs) approaching this from frustration as much as I'm just seeing some truths in it or some untruths in it anyway. Uh, So as many of y'all probably know, there's a group out there called Arts Administrators of Color Network. It's just that, an organization that connects black and brown arts administrators so that everyone can network, they can chat, commiserate in some cases and everything in between. Uh, So there was a recent discussion within the group about black leaders abandoning the quote unquote people once they get their high power positions. There were arguments on every side of the issue, uh, including the fact that people of color are typically thrown into a huge mess that they have to clean up when taking on leadership positions uh, within arts institutions, which in turn prevents creating meaningful initiatives uh, for communities of color. You have that extreme all the way to the other side of these arguments that laid out this idea that people of color shouldn't be expected to do the so-called woke work just because they're in those positions as people of color. Apparently, it's an example of white supremacy culture to have decolonist expectations of people of color. Hmm. Well, (laughs) this is precisely why I don't spend much time talking about diversity and inclusion anymore, uh, especially with that latter point. We've done a great job of including marginalized people within predominantly white structures and diversifying these systems. But to what end? Look at what orchestras are continuing to program. Look at what conservatories are continuing to teach. Look at how much has not changed in the grand scheme of things, minus a few notable black and brown composers and classical music celebrities that are thrown to the front to appease us. I've talked about it on this show before, and I'll say it again, I believe that in many cases, a part of the job requirement is to go along, to be a part of the status quo as a a person of color, so that you can be pointed to as the reason why everything is okay, and that people like me are just going off the rails and don't understand the change that's happening, or, you know, whatever other excuses that people come up with to try to gaslight people for calling out white supremacy as it exists even among people of color. I take this work so seriously because I end up feeling like I'm seeing things that other people don't see. Again, I get this feeling of being gaslit so often that I feel like I have to go even harder just to get people to understand the proximity between the real life racism that's out there and the status quo of classical music. It's easy to see things like Klan rallies and racially charged mass shootings and political manifestations of systemic racism as examples of white supremacy culture peeking its head into the mainstream. But as I say all the time, no one needs to be called a nigger for real life racism to be identified inside of these spaces. I see the obvious things just as well as anyone else. I watch the news. I'm a part of social media, so I'm not diminishing the the dangers of these real life things that are happening. Uh, rest in peace to all of the, those people that were uh, killed at the Dollar General by that white supremacist last week. Um, and so while we acknowledge those things, I feel like people don't consider the ways in which orchestras continue to program as something equally violent. 
the activist Angela Davis, uh, I think, has done a really beautiful job of helping people understand that violence comes in many forms, um, including not teaching history correctly, um, to not serving school lunches that are nutritious, especially in, um, in communities of color and under uh, uh, where resources are, are low. And I see, you know, this whole orchestra thing as being in that category. I hope that you will continue to push yourself to think about the ways in which the classical industry is doing the same thing behind names like Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms, and by way of black and brown leaders who are unwilling to push for the change for whatever reason, whether it's their own job safety, their uh, reputations, whatever it may be. Now, I understand that uh, there's a lot of privilege in being able to stand to the front and speak the way that I speak, so I do want to acknowledge that, but more often than not, so much more can be done. And, and you know, what, what was laid out uh, in the Arts Administrators, Arts Administrators of Color Network uh, discussion, I think just highlights this once again. Um, so what's my point at the end of the day? Again, let's not diminish the degree to which we, and by we, I mean people of color, perpetuate the violence of white supremacy by going along with the classical status quo. The system is perfect because it's incredibly easy to become a part of it, even through so-called DEI work. I'll be damned if I ever sit on a stage or buy a ticket to a show that doesn't center broader perspectives on so-called classical music because I see that sort of practice as violence and perpetuating it is equally violent. I would be ashamed to perform and present music that centers Eurocentricity, and you should be too. The shame can't be the end of the story, though. Take that poison, that shameful poison, and turn it into medicine. Go out of your way to collaborate with individuals and with organizations that are approaching this whole thing in a more progressive way. Put yourself in check, as I often do when you do something or say something or perform something just because you always have. Understand that the ways in which classical music exists today fall right in line with the fascist reality that so many lawmakers and their voters are working to bring to life. Let me say that again. Understand that the ways in which classical music exists today falls right in line with the fascist reality that so many lawmakers and their voters are working to bring to life. We're running the risk of having a prisoner as a president, for fuck's sake. And the predominantly white programming of our arts institution is not a respite from that nonsense, is actually a result of it. Take that with you this week. Thank you so much for listening. As always, appreciate your continuing to be a part of this struggle in the best way that you can. We all have a unique mission, and I'm counting on you to execute yours. Until next time, be good or be bad. It's up to you. See you then. Mm -hmm.